Okay, friends, Greg Kokel here. Stand a Reason is the show, and I'm your host, and thank you for being part of the show. I have a piece in front of me right now that is it kind of falls in the category of, uh, like, truth is stranger than fiction, all right, a little bit, um, because sometimes it's just um, amazing to me what some Christian people will say or claim or be concerned about given that they are Christian. In light of the fact that they're Christian, I'm surprised that they're concerned about this, especially when they are people of the cloth. In other words, they are Christian ministers of some sort. Okay, so I have a piece here from The Guardian, and that's a British um, publication from July 7, 23, a week or so ago. Apparently, that the um, General Synod of the Church of England, that would be the ruling body of the Church of England, is concerned about the Lord's Prayer. It's problematic. Now, what would you think would be problematic about the Lord's Prayer? When I first saw this piece, I asked myself that question before I read it. I'm thinking, well, I don't know, forgive us our sins as we forgive our, you know, those who sinned against us. Maybe admitting that we're sinners would be a problem. But this is the Church of England. How could they say such a thing? No, that wasn't the problem. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. No, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No, that's not. Uh, forgive us our deaths. We forgive us. Give us this day our daily bread. No, for thine is the kingdom. What's the problem? Well, I, I, I just mentioned the words that were the problem, but they went so fast past me because they were seem they seemed to be the things that would not be a problem. It was the first words, our Father, our Father. Archbishop of York tells General Synod that our Father has patriarchal connotations, to which I respond, no, duh. Yes, it isn't our somebody. It isn't our the great man upstairs or the big man upstairs. Um, it isn't the, um, the, the, uh, the, uh, eternal other, or whatever. It is our Father. Now, why use that language? Well, for one, it is the language that the Father uses of himself, and it is the language that Jesus encouraged his disciples to use when they address the one who identifies himself as the Father. Now, uh, let me ask you a question, and now I'm talking to grown-ups here. Um, are any of you tempted to think, when God identifies himself as a father, or uh, Jesus says that we are to pray to the Father, are any of you tempted to think that God is male? 
Now, I suspect there would be some that might do that simply because they're untutored, and they haven't really thought this through very much, or maybe children. But I I think most of us realize that God is not a man, and He is not a woman, and He is not a human being, that God Himself is not a gendered or sexed, um, I don't want to say creature, that sounds diminishing, individual, existant, person. He's not like that. Yes, we get it. And in fact, there are passages that identify aspects of God that are are truly feminine um, in content, although that's even dangerous to say nowadays. But doesn't he say in um, Psalm 91 that, that he will cover us with his pinions? Do you know what a pinion is? A pinion is is a feather. God will cover us with his feathers? Well, of course, nobody really thinks that means he's feathered, or he ha- is a bird. It is a, a figure of speech that captures the picture of a hen spreading its wings over its brood to protect them. So it's a wonderful picture that does the job well in the psalm to talk about God's protection over us. In fact, I have prayed that phrase frequently, that God would cover my home and my family with his pinions. I am asking for God's protection the kind of protection that is somewhat captured in the image of a mother hen protecting her brood. Okay? And, but I'm never tempted to think that God is a mother or a hen. I'm just drawing on the imagery of the text, the figure of speech that is meant to communicate something about God, because I know that God is not a mother, and he is not a hen, but he is a spirit being who has cho- who is not a male, but has chosen to describe himself principally in terms of fatherhood. His choice, not ours. Now, why did he do that? That's a fair question. And um, I guess I would answer because he is principally doing the kinds of things that dads are supposed to do for families. Cover, provide for, protect, be in charge of, be the head of, of and the unusual thing or the unfortunate thing is all of these notions about dads now are under challenge. And because some dads have abused that role, then the idea of God being called a dad, a father, um, is problematic. 
Now, it may be problematic in part because people don't like the idea of dads being the patriarch. That dad being the patriarch, in other words, the head of the family, that that's under under challenge now, too. That's contentious. And so just that dad is the head of the family, that's bad. So if God is like a dad who's the head of stuff, well, that sounds like dad's being head of family, and that's not good. Well, maybe what's not good is deviating from what God has established for families. I realize there are differences of opinion here, the egalitarian approach, the complementarian approach. Mine is the second, not the first, because I think the Scripture teaches that. Men and women complement each other in very particular ways, but they do not have egalitarian roles, equal roles in things, particularly the family or church leadership. I don't say that because I'm a bigot or because I'm a man. I say that because I think that's what the Scripture teaches. And by the way, I think that's the harder job. Now, I'm not going to go into this because a long time ago Amy said, don't ever talk about this because people will get really mad at you. But I'm just going to say, I think that's the harder job. Leading is the harder job for a number of reasons, which I won't go into. So Amy doesn't yell at me. But here's the article. The Archbishop of York has suggested that opening words of the Lord's Prayer recited by Christians all over the world for 2,000 years may be problematic, quote-unquote, because of their patriarchal association. In his opening address to a meeting of the Church of England's ruling body, the General Synod, he dwelt on those words. Now, part of the main emphasis was our, because he's speaking um, exhortation to unity in the Church, our Father. He's the same Father for all of us. However, the Father part is also problematic. He says, I know the word Father is problematic for those who experience, whose experience of earthly fathers has been destructive and abusive. And for all of us who have labored rather too much from an oppressively patriarchal grip on life, he said. Now, I, well, I can understand why it would be difficult for people who had bad relationships with their father to think of God as a father. So when somebody says God is a father, you duck. Okay. Which emphasizes the importance of us as fathers to represent our Heavenly Father to our children in a, a, through, in an accurate way, by acting appropriately as fathers to them. Because when we act inappropriately, that action and that manner is conveyed to them about the way God the Father must be, you know, for good or for ill right? So we have to be careful. Now, it seems to me, given the fact that there are people who've had bad experiences with their father, it, the better choice is not to abandon the use of father to describe God, that is, the way he describes himself, but rather to um, reform the idea, revitalize the idea, okay? Uh, help people have an—our uh, God is a loving father. He's not an abusive father, like many people have experienced, but nevertheless, 
Um, and by the way, about the oppressively patriarchal grip on life, I'm not exactly sure what all that entails. It does seem in our culture that the idea of patriarchy, well, that itself is oppressive. If you think that fathers, for example, are in charge of their families, that is oppressive. Well, maybe it's not. Even though it can be used oppressively, maybe it's for our good, and it's a signal to accomplish, or a a directive that is meant to accomplish human flourishing. Maybe that's what's going on there. Any event. Uh, Let's see. I mentioned unity, and that was the main focus of the talk, apparently, because there is disunity, apparently, in the Church of England. Um, a body whose differences on issues of, as the article explains here, sexuality, identity, and equality have been highly visible for years. So now there's dissent in the Church of England, has been for a while, on these kinds of things where there's been dissent for quite a while. Sexuality, identity, and of course you know what that's talking about. That's talking about gender and also sexual identity, not just gender identity, and equality, because all of these issues about sexuality and gender identity have been made into issues of equality, I think. And, of course, whether or not men and women have the same roles in different institutions God has ordained, like church or family, uh, that that is a question of equality in people's minds as well. But um, after Cottrell's speech, Canon. Dr. Chris Sugden, not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Chris, if I've mispronounced, my apologies. He's the chair of the conservative Anglican mainstream group, Group pointed out that in the Bible, Jesus urged people to pray to our Father. In case you missed this, there's a reason we do this. It's because Jesus said that. And then he asks, is the Archbishop of York saying Jesus was wrong, or that Jesus was not pastorally aware? And then adds, it seems to be emblematic of the approach of some church leaders to take their cues from culture rather than Scripture. And there you have it. So my question is the same as Canon Chris Sugden. Why must the Bible and Christians who are attempting to be faithful to Scripture, why must we all conform to cultural conventions? Why is that the rule? Rather than just letting the Bible say what the Bible says and God be addressed the way he's, he, he wants to be addressed. All right? But um, Reverend Christina Rees, who campaigned for female bishops, said Cottrell had put his finger on an issue that's a really live issue for Christians and has been for many years. Okay, fair enough. Why has it been a live issue? Because culture is going a different way than what Scripture is going. Okay, got it. And then she adds, quote, The big question is, do we really believe that God believes that male human beings bear his image more fully and accurately than women. Close quote. Now that statement surprised me, because that is not the the claim that's being made by those who address 
the Father as the Father, or God as Father, and the Son as Son, because that's also male, that somehow males have more the image of God than females? Whoever suggested such an idea? Oh, I imagine it's out there somewhere. But how does calling God our Father suggest that women are less in the image of God? Well, I guess women aren't a father. And so, if we are made in the image of God, that means we're made in the image of Father. But the people that are made in the image of God, according to the text, are male and female. (laughs) Which suggests not that God is mostly male and females are substandard, but rather it is the male and the female collectively that best express or demonstrate or manifest the image of God in man. And I say best only in the sense that there are different aspects. Human, male human beings and female human beings each have fully been made individually in the image of God. They are no less the image of God, but there are aspects of being male and female that, um, that, that express the fullness of what God is like. And that's why we have these passages that are focused on feminine things like the pinions of the hen, the feathers protecting the brood. But it, who thinks that this means that somehow women are substandard? I'll tell you where you find that. You find that in the Gospel of Thomas. I mean, that's a Gnostic gospel. Gnosticism taught that. It's right in the Gospel of Thomas, but it's it's not Christian. It's not biblical. So why would that be a concern, given God being referred to as Father? Anyway, uh, apparently, um, in February, the Church of England said it would consider whether to stop referring to God as He. Well, then you're going to have to change your Bibles, because that's what the Bible said. And then you wondered, well, why change the Word of God? You're not supposed to do that. Isn't there that verse at the end of Revelation that says, naughty, naughty, don't mess with that? Why are we changing He? Simply because of cultural pressure. Why are we giving in to that? If God says He, if the Scripture is God's Word, then then He it is. That's the Word we're supposed to be using. And if it's not God's Word, then what are you doing with the Bible? Why mess with it at all? Why not just dispense with it and all of its inconvenient passages and make up your own religion? I mean, that's my view. If, if you want to name yourself Christian and then not believe what Christianity teaches, which includes what the Bible teaches, then then make up a different religion and give yourself a different name and get rid of the Bible. That's fine. But don't treat Scripture like a wax nose that you can twist and turn in any direction. That's my appeal, basically. It agreed, that is, the Commission, Church of England, agreed to launch a commission on gendered language saying Christians have recognized since ancient times that God is neither male nor female, of course. Yet the variety of ways of addressing and describing God found in Scripture has not always been reflected in our worship. Okay, I'm not sure how you're going to fix this in light of that statement. Remember, I just mentioned 
that God is, in a sense, metaphorically characterized as a bird, a female bird, covering us with His wings. So, is it important to reflect that particular piece of information in our worship? Well, I guess in the worship you're quoting Psalm 91, all right, but but it doesn't mean that we need to somehow say, praise the bird, just because that's an aspect of the way God is characterized in Scripture. So I, I, I just don't get it. You want to know how to address God? Read Psalms. In worship, read Psalms. Take our cues from God's Word as to what God wants. Why not let God decide, is my question. Um, and the reason, I think the answer is, because it does not comport well with the cultural sensitivities or sensibilities of some. Why? Oh, <clears throat> I guess. I guess this is a the 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 principle here is if if it ain't broke, don't fix it, <laughs> and it ain't broke. Calling God our Father is what He. It reflects what He says about Himself, and what Jesus told us to do. And if some Christians don't like that and think we should change it, then maybe you should find a new religion that doesn't refer to God as Father. But don't make the religion that refers to God as Father, because that's the way God refers to Him, change their approach to somehow gender-neutral. You don't like that? Look at there's a lot of things about God I do not like. <laughs> that doesn't change a single thing. What's true is still true. You know, love is love. Remember that one? Okay, how about truth is truth? Truth is truth. Scripture is truth. It is God speaking, and this is the way He talks. And his way of talking doesn't need to be fixed. Not I-M-H-O. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Back in a moment with your calls. Hey friends, would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely, relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other Stand to Reason followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. Many people claim that if abortion is made illegal, women will be forced to get dangerous back alley abortions and end up injuring or killing themselves. Well, how do you graciously respond to such a claim? Find out in the most recent episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schleeman. Look for it on Spotify, iTunes, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. 
Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. Okay, friends, a couple of things happen at STRU. We've got two new courses, and I some I thought somewhere I saw that this is like the 20th course or something. Is that really? We've got a lot of courses at Standard Reason University, and the two new ones are one that I did called Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair. By the way, it says planted firmly. That's a common mistake when people cite that book, but maybe that's the title of this class. It isn't quite like the book. Relativism, pleat, feet <laughs> planted firmly in midair, and uh, John Noyes also has a teaching on Jesus the only way, or Jesus only one way, and you can register for free today at training.str.org. Um, I have mentioned it a number of times, and I'll keep doing it um, because this is, it's self-serving, but also helps you, is I have a new book coming out. September 12th. We're already scheduling interviews for that, and the whole marketing thing is on the move. Uh, the book is called Street Smarts, Using Questions to Answer Christianity's Toughest Challenges. And uh, the um, it's a sequel, as you might imagine, to the Tactics book. And it is available now for pre-order on Amazon. So you can go right down Amazon and uh, just type in my name, K-O-U-K-L, and it will uh, come up. If you type in Street Smart, you might get it, just like you might with Tactics, but there's a lot of other titles that might have those words in, and you might have a hard time finding it. Just type in my name, because I don't have many titles there, and you'll be able to find it. Um, and this is a book, by the way, that focuses on showing what the fundamental flaws are in common, current challenges uh, to Christian beliefs and values, okay? So, Here's where we're wrong, is what they say. And then I say, here's where they're wrong in identifying where we're wrong. So I educate you about those issues in a whole range of things, problem of evil, atheism, abortion, Bible and science, the Bible by itself, Jesus, um, gender, uh, sex, marriage, that kind of stuff. And I talk about all of that. Here's the stuff. But then I help you with dialogues and questions that will help launch the dialogue to show you how you can expose the flaws that I have just um, shown in the text by using a questioning technique to navigate tactically in the conversation. Anyway, it's the longest book that I've ever written. It's got, what, 85,000 words, but partly it's longer because of all the dialogues that are in there. And it turns out we have been asked, uh, ironically— We've received in the last couple of months a couple of different letters that uh, requested something like this. Yeah, we read the tactics book, but we what we don't have and we'd like to see more of is how do these tactics play themselves out when dealing with specific challenges to Christianity? And, of course, that's the role 
street smarts. So that's all available for pre-order, and uh, just go to Amazon for that. And of course, when the time comes, we'll be offering it through Stand to Reason as well. All right. Uh, I don't want to forget this, but Amy Hall, so I'm telling you, Amy Hall will be online on Facebook on Wednesday, August 1st. That's about two weeks, and I think I missed it last time. So I'm telling you now in advance, and she'll be answering your questions there Wednesday, August 1st at 1 p.m. PT. 1 p.m. PT. Robbie Lashua will be in Urbandale, Iowa for the LEAD conference, lead conference, Friday and Saturday, July 21st and 22nd. You may want to head out there if you are close to Urbandale, Iowa. I will be teaching in Bend, Oregon for the Higher Ground Summit on Friday, August 4th. Um, I'm going to be at Summit next weekend. The weekend after the week after that, I'll be at CIA, but that's kind of a closed registration. Actually, last I heard, there were some openings, maybe three, but maybe those have been filled. Cross-examine Instructor Academy, July 27th on Thursday to Saturday the 22nd, 29th rather, and then in Bend, Oregon for the Higher Ground Summit Friday. August 4th. Well, we have a full bank of calls here, so let's just jump in. And in Utah is Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello, sir. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Yes, Welcome. sir. Yeah, so I, I kind of had more of a, an observation, kind of a thought experiment. Um, that I just kind of wanted to just kind of run by you for some thoughts in regards to the identity crisis that we're kind of experiencing here uh, uh, in our, our culture, really across the world. Um, you know, it's interesting, you know, as we have seen uh, in your recent podcast with some of these, uh, you know, kids uh, identifying as animals, right? Or, the um, the, furries. the moon, things, things the, like that. Right. You know, I guess, uh, you know, as a Christian, you know, my approach to a lot of this is, you know, obviously treating people respectfully, but um, when it comes to gender, um, you know, not to conform or affirm someone's false ideologies about themselves, and and so. I, I get the dangers of obviously how we've done that. You treat guys as girls and you put them in women's sports um, and they, they dominate women's sports or then, you know, locker rooms and restrooms, the dangers in that. But, you know, just a, just a thought experiment, you know, it, it's, it's interesting when it comes to animals or objects, you know, if it kind of highlights the absurdity of what's going on here, you know, I, I can't help but think, you know, um, you know, it's kind of hypothetically like what, what if we were to treat them um, really as they claim they, they, they say they are? I think we could easily show the absurdity. Um, again, right. this is kind of a thought experiment. You know, if a kid shows up to class and, and says he's the moon, you know, my, my, my question would be like, well, what's the moon doing at school, <laughs> right? Right. You know, like the, the, the moon doesn't need to learn grammar or history. Um, and the same thing with cats and dogs. I mean, obviously, we don't see that in, you know, real cats and dogs right. putting them in desks at schools to take tests. Obviously, there's no need for that. So. It's just a thought experiment as I'm thinking, you know, like, hey, if the kid wants to say he's a cat or dog, you know, if I'm a teacher, I'm just going to send him home. And if the parent asks, what are you doing home? And ask the teacher about it. Well, your kid, your kid said he's a cat. He doesn't need to learn English or, or right, history. Right, so, <laughs> right. So, no, I um, think that's a fair, um, in a cert certain sense, assessment. It's an example of taking the roof off tactic, if you've read the tactics right. book. You're taking their point of view seriously for the sake of discussion, and then you're looking at the ramifications of that view um, if you carry it out to its logical conclusion. The thing about the furries, though, I... I my sense is with, I, I, by the way, people have done this now with other aspects of uh, identity issues, like if the gender 
if a person is to be addressed according to the gender they identify with, why why not according to the age or the ethnicity they identify? So they right. could be a 50-year-old white man who wants to identify as a 30-year-old um, American, uh, uh, American uh, Native American or something like that, you know? Why not right. that? And so, the, again, right. it's, it's meant to show the absurdity of it. And I, the same thing here. Now, with the furries, I actually think that, that the most of, and, and this is true a lot with the with a whole bunch of this stuff, but especially with the furry, I think this is just kind of a fad. Yeah. Children are told, you know, they can identify as whatever gender they want. That, I think, is a social contagion because gender dysphoria, before that was almost always um, a problem, tr- true gender dysphoria, a problem for males that were maybe two, three, four years old or five years old, almost exclusively in that age group. Something happened very early, and that was true gender dysphoria. Now it's predominantly female teenagers and adolescents. Why the change? Well, there's a cultural reason for that, and a lot of people are onto that. It's a social contagion. It's kind right. of a fad. It's gotten a much more serious, though, um, of late because of the sports thing and because of the mutilation that children, and I mean this, I'm using my words advisedly, children are being allowed to have done to their body in light of uh, the gender confusion that is largely contrived. Now, that's probably not going to happen with furries, though, as I talked about last week, who knows and why not? Yeah. <laughs> the reason that this is happening in those UK schools, and that was the, the article was focused on, is because this is an application of the flexibility of identity in gender that children are now applying to species. And why not, is the question, and this is where taking the roof off comes in. If you take the concept seriously and apply it consistently, this is what you get. Now what? And yeah. uh, it's, it's probably going to get more silly before it gets more sane. But uh, anyway, with kids, I think it's fair to say that. So wait a minute, you're the moon. Why are you in class? You don't need to do anything but reflect the sun and, yeah. uh, you know, and, and move the tides or whatever you want, to, you know, or right. if they're uh, some kind of animal, then, OK, wait a minute. So that means, uh, you know, maybe you need a, a, a hutch if you're a rabbit. But, you know, there's some there was some joking, apparently, about children saying they're cats and then given a litter box to use for the bathroom. Now, I guess that was just a joke or whatever, but. Uh, as I said last week, why not? And right. that which is a joke at one moment becomes reality in another. The parody gets fulfilled in reality. So uh, I think it's a fair observation. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and, and it's interesting to me, you know, I feel like maybe one reason why some of these kids have been able to kind of get away with this is because what they've, uh, for so long, it seems like with some of this ridiculousness is it seems that how they ident- are identifying doesn't necessarily have any sort of negative impact to the people that, yeah. like the teachers or the school boards. And I feel like a really easy way to, to, to kind of show them, um, you know, to have the impact on them is I'm surprised the kid hasn't identified as the principal and then fired all the teachers, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> well, there you go. See, there's another, you know, application of the same principle. 
Yeah, yep, I have a feeling that if that was to happen, the teachers would still show up to work the next day and teach, right? But um, yeah. it's crazy. Anyway, I guess you know when, you, when they start applying it in ways that that have negative quote negative impacts on on others that are that are defending them and, and you know and, and calling out other people you know as discriminating if they try to correct them to be a boy or a girl it's, then we could easily anyways that was just a thought experiment yeah. I thought you know I I've read your book and I I think that's exactly it taking the roof off on that and. To me, I feel like that's maybe where it's going to have to go to kind of show the absurdity is it's, I think, already right. going. No, actually, but, uh, I'll, I, I think the thing that's going to make the difference is not going to have anything to do with logic or reason. It's going to be lawsuits. And it's already yeah. happening in the U.K. When, pe- when kids were given uh, surgeries that altered their body, mutilated a perfectly good body, uh, and a couple years later they say, I want my body parts back or something, or why did you let me do this when I was a kid? And then the lawsuits are going to come pouring in, and this will stop. It hasn't yep. started on the legal end so much yet, but I think that's going to happen. So the sooner the better yep. as far as I'm concerned. Oh, absolutely. All right, Chris. <laughs> well, well, thank you, sir. Yeah, thank you for the call. I appreciate that. Let's go to Kevin in uh, Columbus, Ohio. Kevin, we've talked before, haven't we? Yes, sir. And I met you at CIA, and I'll see you there next week. Yeah, got it. Okay, nice to talk to you again. Yeah, hey, um, I was reading Exodus, Exodus um, in my Blue Letter Bible app uh, yesterday, and Exodus 9 says, um, it has an apparent contradiction. I wanted to get your right. take on it. Um, it says, uh, the plagues will come and destroy all livestock of the Egyptians but not of the Israelites. And then it came and destroyed all the livestock, is what it said. And then a couple lines down, a few lines down, it says, hail's going to come, God warns them, go get your livestock and bring it in. Yeah. Tells the Egyptians this. And yeah. so they did. They brought it in. Obviously, How can there be any livestock if they're... Dead. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. That's well, I think what this is, is hyperbole. Uh, hyperbole is exaggeration for the sake of effect. And so what you have in the first plague is a massive destruction of livestock, but not every swing and tail was dead. There were still some that survived, but you had this massive destruction. And then there's another plague that's offered, and if they don't respond, given the plague coming, they're going to lose more, what little they have left. And that's the way I would read it. And and the reason I read it that way is it is a common feature of not only ancient Near Eastern literature, but all literature, to speak in these dramatic terms when dramatic things are happening, okay? And um, so we, we shouldn't be surprised that that's expressed there. We have, we have uh, a hyperbole. Man, he wiped them all out. Wait a minute, weren't there some left? Yeah, well, there's some left. Then he didn't wipe them all out. Well, no, not literally every single person, but there was a massive destruction. And we see this in the the number of passages that are actually problematic for <clears throat> Christians or re- others reading the Bible when you see this destruction of the Canaanites in the conquest. You know, wipe out every man, woman, and child. Really? Is that what God was requiring? And and I think the answer is no. And it's clear from other passages that this isn't what actually took place. 
But uh, nevertheless, this is the language that's used. And incidentally, it's interesting, you're identifying here Exodus chapter 9, verse 6, and then you go down nine verses to verse 18 of the same chapter through 21, and then there's another reference. Do you think that the person who is writing Exodus was aware that in verse 6 he says one thing, and then in verse 18 through 21 he's saying something that appears to be contradictory? Yeah, he's no dummy. He's aware of it, but he was also aware that it's not a contradiction, because he's using language in the way we often use language, hyperbolically. Exaggeration for the sake of effect. He didn't mean in verse 6, there were no animals left. That would be, the, I think, the most appropriate way to take that passage. Okay. Make well, sense? thank you. Okay. All right. I appreciate the call, Kevin. Uh, let's see. Time to take a break? Yeah, let's take a break, and then we'll get to Nathan and Abel and Glenn and anybody else who wants to call at 855-243-9975. Hold on there. Stay with us. Did you know Stand a Reason has a YouTube channel? We release a new video each Monday on the topics you care about. Through short, engaging videos, our speakers train you on tactics, offer apologetics tips, answer common theology questions, and address big issues in the world today. Join tens of thousands of other subscribers so you can stay up to date when we release a new video. Just go to youtube.com and search STR videos, all one word, and hit the subscribe button. That's STR videos. Take advantage of this free resource to help you stay informed, encouraged, and equipped as you share your worldview with others. Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? You may be interested in starting an STR Outpost. STR Outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country, and we're adding more each month. If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost, or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org outposts. You can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts at str.org. So regarding that last issue we talked about, uh, the animals dying, and Amy had an observation, maybe the Egyptians borrowed some cattle from the Jews because they didn't lose any. Hey, can I borrow your cow? No, that's probably not the right answer. But um, It does go to an issue, though, because I made this com- comment <clears throat> about, like, here you got one verse saying one thing, and then an apparent contradiction— just a few sentences down. Uh, There's a principle here, and the principle is you give the benefit of the doubt to the writer, and you read the writer charitably. So in Matthew chapter 1, you have a genealogy of Jesus. In Luke chapter, what, 4, you have a different genealogy of Jesus. It's different. Now, it kind of starts out the same way 
similar, but then it diverges. Both go eventually through David, but one through Solomon and one through Nathan, both sons of David. So David ends up at the end of the list. But you've got these different... Oh, that's a contradiction. Now, the question is, do you think that after 2,000 years, you're the first person to see this apparent discrepancy? No, everybody knows about this thing, and they realize that this isn't a problem. And the reason it isn't a problem is it's, it's describing Jesus' genealogy through, through different sources. He had a father of sorts, a stepfather, and he had a physical mother, a birth mother. One genealogy charts through the father, which is the royal line. The other one is the, is the what would you call, birth line, natural line, through Mary. And they all end up at David. So Jesus is the son of David, both through royal lineage and through physical, uh, as, as a physical, a genuine physical descendant. And so when we read that, we, we, we ought to be saying, wait a minute, this can't be the problem we think it is, because it's been there for 2,000 years, and people must have figured it out. And early on, they understood this, must have understood something, and a closer look to, at the language demonstrates that this is, is Jesus' lineage through his mother and his father. Anyway, this goes to—let's just presume that the people who write this are not complete idiots, and maybe something else is going on. Let's look closer. That's reading the text charitably. All right, let's go to uh, Nathan in Peyton, Colorado. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hey. So, I had a, you a question for you. Okay about a statement. Um, this is actually a character in one of Randy Alcorn's books that said this, um, but I'm curious what your take is on it. Um, he said, there's no such thing as neutral, supernatural power sources. They're either good or evil. I'm wondering if you formed an opinion on that, and if so, what it is. Well, you know, I've never been asked this question before. I haven't thought much about it. But um, I, I think there's merit to the point, because um, there are um, immaterial beings that have powers. And so if the, if the beings are not natural in the sense of being made up of, made up of uh, material stuff and subject to the laws of physics, etc., etc., then they are supernatural or they are above natural. All right. That means they are beings that are true beings that um, that are not physical and have certain powers and that are uh, capabilities that are that are supernatural. Okay. <clears throat> it seems to me that they are either fallen or not. Any individual one. Now that's the law of excluded middle. They can't be both. They can't be neither because there's there's no other option. They are either fallen or not. Now, if they're not fallen, they're not neutral, they're not amoral, they are moral. I mean, I'm presuming that they're, they're moral creatures, kinds of creatures to begin with, creatures with whom, for whom moral terms actually apply. So, if they are not fallen, 
then they're not neutral. They are consistent with God's purposes. If they are fallen, which is the only other alternative, then they aren't neutral either. They are inconsistent with God's purposes, and therefore they're evil. So it seems to me those are the only two categories. There's no category like on the fence, some kind of supernatural being that is neutral. I, I don't, you know, it, that's the way it seems to me. Now, when it comes to other created things in the physical realm, there are neutral things. Human beings aren't neutral, but animals are because moral qualities or moral terms or moral obligations do not apply to them. Uh, they are non-moral beings. And so I guess the only kind of genuinely neutral supernatural beings would be beings that for whom moral categories don't apply. So theoretically, I guess there could be if they're non-moral, like animals. But I don't know of any creatures yeah. like that. What do you think? Yeah, I don't. I don't. I mean, how would I know if any of them exist? Sure. Um, the ones that do look like animals, that have the faces of animals, and that use the Greek word for animals, seem to give glory and honor to God, like animals here are supposed to do, and probably did before the fall. Well, wait a minute. I I'm not. But, you have to run that by me again. Are you saying that animals are supposed to give glory, or the creation does glorify? Um, well, I mean, the heavens declare the glory of God. Like yes, I agree. And there's a lot. But the heavens, I mean, properly understood, the heavens aren't acting in a way that gives glory to God. The mountains aren't really clapping their hands and stuff like that. They are evidence of God's glory. And I think the hum the the natural the entire natural realm, including animals, are evidence of God's glory. So that which he made it, it glorifies him. But they are but they are individual animals that are giving wi willingly giving glory to God. I just want to make that distinction. Does that sound fair? I'm not sure I know the answer though. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, a lot of this is. So I guess what my uh, the the question the other question that I had that I did want to make sure I asked you is if there or well you know there's the one category that I asked you about which is the supernatural. What about natural power sources and and like scientific or technological? Um, what would be a natural power? Is Give there, me an example of a natural power source. You mean like a like a generator or or a uh, solar power, wind so, power? Yeah. Well, yeah. There's yeah, no there's no moral quality to the things in themselves. Okay, um, they may be used for good or bad. They may be helpful or non helpful. But the, I don't think the thing itself is evil. You got a poisonous plant. It's just a plant. If a human eats a poisonous plant, then bad befalls the human. But uh, and so we can make a distinction between poisonous plants and non-poisonous plants. But that's only as regards to how they influence humans and affect humans. So I, I I don't think that they're bad plants. If right. if that's if that's the alternative to neutral, 
I presume you mean morally neutral. Is that right? Yeah, like could be used for either good or evil, like foxglove. It can be used as a poison or it can be used as heart medicine. Okay, yeah, so the foxglove is not good or evil. It's the use to which it's put to that makes that moral difference, right? And the question is, then would that extend to the spiritual or celestial realm? Would there be a well, hyper-foxglove? Yeah, uh, well, will. that's because we're just we're, the difference is that, it, one difference at least, is the difference of agency. When you have persons, you have individuals who are capable of making choices. They are agents, okay? And if they're moral beings as agents, they can choose good or evil. If they are not moral beings, like Fido, I mean, after you could say Fido is an agent after a fashion because Fido can go chase the ball. It can choose to go after the ball and bring the ball back to you. Okay, so it can make choices to do things, but these choices do not fall in moral categories. So morally, they are neutral. Okay. Make sense? I think so. Thank you. All right. It's good to talk to you, Nathan. I appreciate your call. I uh, this is a this is a question I've not been asked before. I'm going to hold off with Abel and Glenn for the next hour because I want to. I don't want to give them the short shrift. But I've never really thought about the issue of neutrality. If we're talking about moral neutrality, you have to be. If you are a, if you are a moral being. You have exercised your morality for good or for ill. If consistently for good, you're not neutral because you're good. <laughs> if you have exercised your moral choices for evil, then you're evil, not neutral. Now, could there be some supernatural beings beyond the natural realm, immaterial, not physical, that are like, say, kind of like animals, where animals are individual beings, soulish, who have soulish selves. Animals have souls. If they have a conscious life, they, then, then they must have a soul, because that's where consciousness resides, or it's a function. Con uh, conscience is a function of a, an invisible self, okay? And, uh, well, then it, I guess it's possible for um, that immaterial conscious self who makes decisions to be incapable of making any moral decisions because moral categories don't apply to them. Um, I mean, I guess if Fido could die and his Fido's little simple soul survived the death of his body and they lived on in some realm, Fido would still be non-moral. And therefore, I guess you would say that here is an, a supernatural being, only in a sense, uh, or supranatural, above the natural, or non-natural being that, that is morally neutral. I mean, in principle, that could certainly be the case. Um, but um, I don't know. This is maybe stuff of fantasy, and I don't know if Lewis wrote about this or... Tolkien or somebody, McDonald or someone. Um, but theoretically, you could have these sentient beings that are not physical, but are not moral, 
one way or another and therefore would be neutral. I haven't run into one. Uh, I'll keep my eyes open <laughs> to see what happens. But it's uh, but when it comes to humankind and other rational creatures, hi- highly, um, I can't even say developed, it isn't the right word, just rational creatures, and this would include human beings and angelic beings. These seem to be possessed of moral natures, and um, some exercised their choices morally against God, and that's the fall, the fall of angels, led by Satan himself. And so Satan fell, and the angels fell, and now you've got a demonic realm, which is not neutral, (laughs) just saying. And you have angels that are not neutral, that are moral, and they're good. And that's part of the battle right there. All right, friends, that's it for this show. Greg Kokel, for Stand to Reason, give him heaven. Bye-bye now.